Brand new episode of What's Good. Greg Meskel here with you. Really excited for this week's guest, uh, New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Perlman. Brand new book, Jeff, we're talking today on September 21st. My Amazon delivery tells me your new book will be here, Three Ring Circus, tomorrow. Congrats. Thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for ordering the book. Appreciate that a lot. Happy to do it. I read Showtime, and that was my first question for you. For those that haven't read Three Ring Circus yet, is this kind of the sequel? Does it pick right back up? Was Showtime the impetus for this new book? It was kind of an experience as writing a Laker book. We're very positive. Dealing with the Lakers was a very positive experience. Um, this book, so that book, as you know, ends with Magic's HIV announcement. And this book actually does begin with Magic's return in 1995. And it's supposed to be kind of this glorious back. And, oh, Magic's back, Magic's back. And you probably remember. It's kind of a big deal. People forget. It's one of those things. It seems, it seems so huge at the time. And now it's like, did that even, you know, did that even happen? Like that seemed, it seemed so, and um, it ended up being kind of a mess, mess with teammates and new era of ball players who he just didn't feel. And like, he was so far apart from Nick Van Exel and Eddie Jones and Sabayos. It just, he's, he was, he's looking around wondering where Worthy and Kareem are, you know, and it was, he, and that kind of led to the arrival of the next season of Shaq and Kobe and the new dynasty. So it's not a sequel in the, in the way, like if you didn't read the first book, you can't understand what's going on here. But it's a sequel in that it's the second chapter in a modern Laker dynasty. And, and you talked about kind of the ease of working with that organization. There's also just a great mystique about, about the Lakers. Does, does kind of chronicling one of these all-time great franchises, does that kind of draw you in to want to learn more and write more about them? That's an interesting question. Not necessarily. I think I would be just as happy writing about the Carolina Panthers. You know, it's not. It's not really about the organ. It's nice when an organization is helpful and makes your life a little easier and has really, like Jeannie Buss is one of my favorite people in sports. So and she's the owner of the Lakers and she's just a nice human being and she makes life pretty easy. And that's always nice, but it's more about the characters themselves. It's about uh, not just like Shaq and Kobe and Phil Jackson, but all these interesting side pieces who were there at the time, the Phil Jacksons and Robert Dorries and the Glenn Rices and J.R. Riders and guys like that. So what I really am drawn to, it's not a franchise, it's not a market. It's sort of the characters involved with the story. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've read a lot of your books before. I follow you on Twitter. And so I, I try and come at this thinking of things to ask you that I feel like I haven't heard you explain before or talk about. Yeah. But one of the things I did hear you reference previously, and, and this will obviously be, be a point of interest, is how does Kobe's passing intertwine into this book? And, and I was reading that you had kind of put a disclaimer explaining that this was a look at a man at a different part of his life. And a very succinct period of time and he went on to become someone different. How much did, did his passing kind of give you that trigger to want to clarify something, you know, and not, and not kind of, I, I guess, fall into, and I'm, and I'm rambling here a bit because I'm thinking in my head, if I had a book coming out and then one of the key players passed away, I'd feel a, a bit beholden to the moment. Like, do I have to go back and add a chapter about this guy or do I have to do something extra? How'd you kind of process dealing with all of that as this book is coming out? I actually feel like I'm still processing it. It's, um, it's weird. My first reaction when I heard he died was shock and disbelief and it had nothing to do with the book. Later that day, on the day he died, someone I know called me and said, so is this good for your book? And I was horrified by that question. You know, like I just you know, nine people died. Yeah. His daughter died. You know, like it's not, he has three remaining daughters who are going to have to live the rest of the life without their dad. He has a wife. I mean, it's so far beyond a book, right? So 
I always, I feel like to just, what kind of person would I be if I was like, oh my God, my book, you know, that's like, that's insane. Um, it's weird because he, the book Chronicles 96 to 04, and he does not come off great in 96 to 04. Not always, you know, like there's highs and lows, but there's a lot of bad. And there's the Eagle Colorado situations. There's a lot of awkward things. So I did, the book was done. It was pretty much fact-checked. Was, everything was wrapped. And um, basically I asked my editor if I could throw in a author's note at the beginning. And it really was for two reasons. The number one reason that I thought was important was to make clear to all these people who love Kobe Bryant that like how someone was at age 25 isn't who he was at 41. That applies to all of us. You know, I was a little asshole at 25. You know, doesn't, you're not the same person, you're just not. And then number two also, it was a little bit of a protective crouch. It really was. I wrote a book about Walter Payton. Came out about a decade ago. Sports Illustrated ran an excerpt three weeks before it came out. The excerpt was all about Walter Bain's depression and infidelity and blah, blah, blah. And the backlash to that was really harsh because people just saw it in the bubble. They didn't know there was this whole book and it was just, so it was definitely a little bit of a protective crouch too. I, I thought about the Walter Payton book. I've seen you write about that before and kind of share your thoughts on how you feel like some people didn't give you a fair shake. They kind of reacted to that book or the, or the excerpt without ever having even read it. So I, I understand kind of that, that impetus. Um, What's been kind of the early feedback on, on Three Ring Circus thus far, people that have been able to see advanced copies and, and kind of how you address that moment? Shockingly positive. Um, <laughs> I would be honest, I actually would. I'm not, I'm not a liar, like, like shockingly positive. And I had a, um, I've only had one guy who played on those Lakers. I won't say who it was, but he reached out to me. He actually got an advanced copy of the book. And he told me he loved it. He said he loved it. He thought it was spot on and I nailed the era and that it was really good and um he thought it was fair he said it was hard reading about kobe it's particularly hard the eagle colorado chapter there's a chapter uh titled room 35 which is a room that he was in at the at the resort in eagle colorado it was a hard chapter to write kobe bryant was alive it was a really hard chapter to reread after he died because it's just intense but the guy said he was like look man you nailed it and you got it right and you were honest and blah 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 and this is who he was and it's a fair question. And how long, I mean, how long are you supposed to write this book and not have part in there? You just can't, it's impossible. And I think most people are understanding of that more than I thought they would be. A bestseller labeled by the New York Times, book sales, those are obviously quantifiable measures for what is a successful book, but do endorsements like that, or at least responses that you got it right does that does that weigh more to you when someone that was in it says hey you 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 put the work in and you got this story correct yeah i mean i remember um my first book was about the 1986 match and it was called the bad guys one and one of my first i was young when that came out and one of my first pr appearances during very different times pre-social media i was doing the best damn sports show do you remember the best damn sports sure. show yeah and they flew me out to la it was really exciting and Lenny Dykstra and Ron Darling were going to be on with me. And the producer tells me early on, so Lenny's backed out. He hates the book and he's not going to do it. And I was like, oh, crap. And then I see Ron Darling. Now, in hindsight, I'm, there's no way Lenny Dykstra read the book. But in, then Ron Darling shows up. But now I'm a little nervous because Ron Darling's showing up and I just heard Lenny Dykstra. And Ron says to me, hey, Jeff, I just want you to know you nailed it. You just nailed it. You got it right, man. You got that story right. <sighs> You know, like, it was a real sense of relief. And it's the thing I remember most from 
16 years ago when that book came out. So yeah, man, those things, you know, they mean a lot. They do. They actually mean a lot. I'm, I'm, I feel like a lot of us in this business are very thin skinned and we hate everything we write until someone tells us they like it. And then you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought. So when people give you, you need that. It's stupid, but you need that affirmation a little bit. At least I do. You know, I'm insecure and thin skinned and I think everything I write sucks. You take on a topic like those three-peat Lakers that I think if you're a Lakers fan or you just love the NBA, you follow sports, you feel like you know you know that pretty well. But mm-hmm. this is this is a I think a common thing you do, right? You take on a topic that maybe people feel like they have a good understanding of or they know well, and then you kind of dive deep. What's the challenge to try and tell us something we didn't know about about those Lakers or about Shaq and Kobe or about Phil Jackson? Well, I love that challenge. That's actually my favorite part of it all is the deep dive and the deep, deep dive. And it's really just, um, it really comes down to it. It's not a, a unique skill that like I have and others don't. It's, it's rolling up your sleeves, sitting at a desk, hunkering down and calling people who other people didn't call. So you think about that era. Well, obviously Shaq has been interviewed a million times. Kobe was interviewed a million times. Phil Jackson was interviewed a million times. Probably guys like Glenn Rice and Derek Fisher were interviewed a lot. But how many people are calling Mike Penworthy and Mark Matt? How many people are calling? Uh, I try calling every single member of the summer league teams Kobe was on in 96 and 97. So that means calling Jimmy King and Isaac Fontaine and David Booth and getting their search. And then, um, I really mean this, then calling the players. Like Kobe had this breakout summer league game in 96 against Phoenix. All right. Who am I going to find from that team? Why I'm going to find the two point guards. I'm going to call the center. What do you guys remember about this? What do you guys remember? Like, there are always more people to call. There are always ball boys who have never told their stories. There's always Laker girls who have never told their stories. There's always front office executives. And it doesn't mean you're looking for negatives. It doesn't mean you're even going to get a million things. Maybe one person tells you. One thing I remember about Kobe is he just loved red Gatorade. When someone says something like that, one thing I remember about blank is this. It's usually great. And it almost always makes it in because those little details are the, are the stuff of, you know, that lead to a really quality product, I think. And that's what's so interesting about some of these anecdotes you, you pull out and whether it's this book or Showtime or, or the 86 Mets book or the 90s Cowboys. For you, when you hear an anecdote that you feel like you're the first one to get a hold of this on a large scale that maybe no one else has really gotten is that a euphoric moment? How do you describe that feeling when you're like, this is going to be good? I'll give you my greatest moment. Maybe my greatest moment writing books. It was such a small moment. I was working on my book about Walter Payton. It was called Sweetness about 10 years ago. And Walter Payton, after he was done playing, worked as an assistant basketball coach at a high school near, near Chicago. And he gave the uh, team a pep talk one day before, I think it was on a Friday. And it was about trust. And he took off his Super Bowl ring. And he said, I trust you to the captain of the team with my ring for the weekend. And he gave him the ring. That night, the kid had a party at his house. And everyone's passing around the ring. And at the end of the night, the kid's like, all right, who has Walter's ring? Nobody could find it. On Monday, this kid has to tell Walter Payton he lost his Super Bowl ring, right? He's devastated. And Payton has to pretend it's not a big deal, but it's a huge deal. Years pass. There's a couch on the campus of Purdue University in someone's room. And the guy had a dog. And one day the dog is scratching at the bottom of the couch, scratching, scratching at the bottom of the couch. And uh, the guy who owns the couch looks and is like, what are you scratching at? And it's a Super 
basketball ring, Walter Payton Super Bowl ring embedded uh-huh. in the couch. That couch was at the party years earlier, had been given to this kid who was unrelated to the person going to college. Guy brought it to college, had the couch. The dog found the ring. The name of the dog was Bailey. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's what I love. Yeah. I love finding the name of the dog. That not just that there was a dog, not just that there was a couch, not that just that happened at Purdue University, that the dog's name was Bailey. That is insanely important stuff for me, mainly because I'm a loser and I have no life and those are <laughs> things that I do it for me. But I just love those little details and the color they add, you know? Not, not all of your books, but a lot of them have been you looking back at a specific time and not, you know, a lot of people write, write books in the moment, right? I'm sure if someone's writing a book right now about the bubble in Florida. With they the should. NBA, if, they, if they haven't, they should. I think what draws me into these books is I like sports and I, and I find myself a bit nostalgic. What, what is it for you that draws you into telling something that is not current? Same. I am super I feel like sports, music, and food are three things that bring us back in time. Mm-hmm. You smell apple pie and you immediately think of being in your mom's kitchen when you're eight years old, right? You hear Rich Girl by Hall & Oates and you remember driving in your uncle's car with it. You know what I mean? Like, and sports do that as powerfully as anything. And they do it for me as powerfully as anything. And it's funny. I always say, I always tell young aspiring sports journalists, if you love sports, like if you are a diehard Detroit Tigers fan, that is your love. Don't become a sports writer because becoming a sports writer, you see behind the curtain, right? And it actually takes away something. It really chops away a big chunk of that. So if I'm the stat, like I covered Major League Baseball at Sports Illustrated, if I'm nostalgic for those days, it's nostalgia for the experience of covering the sport, not for the games themselves and not for the players. It's just these experiences and traveling here and jet setting. But for me, like Walter Payton was a poster on my wall. The 86 Mets, I'm sitting in the Gargano's house with Vinny Gargano telling me about Dwight Gooden and I'm 13 years old, you know, like. I love that stuff. And I love being able to dig back into it. Like the USFL is my ultimate nostalgia book. I'm sure if the USFL came around now in 2020, I'd be like, eh, okay. But like <laughs> when I was there at the time and I remember being a boy and just my eyes, the size of, you know, half dollars seeing Herschel Walker in a general, that power, man, that stuff is, it's just like a drug. So I'm like, I'm all about the nostalgia, hundred percent. It's interesting. And I, I don't want to get too much off of a tangent here, but you talked about your, your love for the 86 Mets and the Mets in general. And I grew up a Mets fan too. And that's probably why I liked, I liked the, the 86 Mets book so much because even though I was younger, that team was like revered in my household, right? For what they were accomplishing. Sports, I think if you work in sports, you had a, a childhood or a history of loving sports, but then you get into sports journalism and you're supposed to be able to be very down the middle, right? And not, and not have uh, your allegiances show and that sort of thing. And I've always been a bit conflicted by that because the whole reason I wanted to work in sports in the first place was because of these teams that I loved, but now I'm supposed to get to a point where I don't really have that same love. It's like a third person removed sort of thing. And the stuff you've done writing, whether it's books, Sports Illustrated, how do you kind of keep your love of sports, but kind of at a distance for the things that you were a true fan of? That's a great question. So a few things. Number one, I probably don't have the same love of sports that I used to have, just to be honest. Now, we live not that far from Angels Stadium, just as an example. I love going to Angels games with my son, but I only love it because we sit there and we eat and we talk and we challenge ourselves to get the seats that we didn't pay for, you know, and like, then we'll be like, oh, the fifth inning, let's go to the highest seat in the stadium. You know, we'll, 
it's an experience for us that I love. And I miss the season so badly. Like, I love that stuff. I love living in Southern California and all the different sporting events I've been able to go to with my son. It became, it was this thing. He's a freshman in high school and they grow up so fast. And it's been magical for me. Like it really has, it's been, we've gone to Azusa Pacific football games. We go to Long Beach state basketball games. We've gone, you know, just great. And so awesome. But I remember when I was early at Sports Illustrated, someone said to me, uh, a friend of mine said, man, your team is doing really well. And I swear to God, I, it took me a while, maybe five minutes to be like, wait, what, like, who's my team? Like, I don't, I just stopped. I actually just stopped. I stopped rooting for teams. I wasn't a Met fan anymore. I wasn't a Nets fan anymore. Like, I just stopped. I just turned it off. And it really wasn't as hard as you would think. And then once you start covering them, you just kind of see these guys. If anything, you root for people who are nice and you root for good stories. But I haven't had a team that I really, like the Jets, I grew up a diehard Jet fan. The Jets are horrible this year. Like, I don't really care. I talk like I'm a Jet fan because I grew up a Jet fan. It's in my DNA a little bit, but I, I don't really care. Yeah, I, I used to tell a story working in sports television. Nothing will remove your fandom like having a deadline for the evening news where you just need a game to end. So even if I grew up a Mets fan and it's Mets versus Brewers and it looks like Brewers are going to close it out in the bottom of the ninth, that needs to happen more than the Mets need to come back for me personally because we have highlights that are starting in two right. or three minutes away. So it does, as you said, you get in these experiences that forcefully remove your fandom. Also, I, I used to always think this and I still maintain it. If you're a diehard Barry Bonds fan, you know how you become less of a diehard Barry Bonds fan? Meet Barry Bonds or have to deal <laughs> with Barry Bonds on a regular basis. Or you're a diehard baseball fan and you worship these guys. Okay, show up two and a half hours before a game uh, and you need to just get one quote from a middle reliever from the Padres and stand there as he stands you up knowing you're standing right there. You know, like the experiences of covering sports, if nothing else, they show you how um, these guys are just as human and just as flawed and just as normal as you are. And there's no, the great divide that you feel as a kid and as a diehard fan, it doesn't really exist. It's kind of just a creative thing. So we're talking about your, your new book coming out, uh, Three Ring Circus, profiling at 96 to 04 Lakers. Without obviously giving any of the big things away, we want people to buy this book and read it. But, but what, what was generally speaking, I guess, in as much detail as you get into, maybe, maybe a thing that just really surprised you, a thing that you went into it not knowing that that kind of blew you away a little bit. I just want to say also, it's kind of funny when I do these interviews, people say they almost do this preventive strike, like without giving too much away. And I feel like I don't <laughs> mind giving stuff away. Like it's, you know, it's a 400 page book. If I give something yeah. away, there's other stuff to read. It's all good. Um, <laughs> one thing I love, and I don't think I realized the impact of it at the time is uh, Kobe is a, became a Laker. It sucks. I still speak to him in present tense all the time. And it's a habit I need to break. Um, Kobe became a Laker because of John Calipari. That is the reason he became a Laker. And I feel like this is way overlooked. Um, basically, it's 1996. The Nets have the eighth pick in the draft. John Calipari is a new coach straight out of UMass. He's making a lot of money. And the one thing he has in his contract is final personnel say. John Nash is a general manager of the team. They've worked out Kobe four or five times. They love Kobe Bryant. They're all in on Kobe Bryant. John Nash calls Kobe's parents, Joe and Pam, and says, are you comfortable if we draft Kobe Bryant? Like, that'd be great. We don't live that far away. It's going to be great. John Calipari's in his office, and he gets a call from Kobe Bryant, I think the day before the draft. 
says, Hey coach, you know, I've really been thinking, and I think I want to get away from my parents. So um, I'd rather you guys not draft me. Calipari's like, Oh shit. Oh my God. Oh my God. He runs into John Nash's office. John Nash is like, it's just, don't worry about it. It's just a bluff. This is what they do. Uh, Kobe's agent, Arn Tellum, calls Calipari. He's like, uh, we don't want you drafting our client. If you draft him, he's probably going to go play in Italy for a year. Calipari, back into John Nash's office. John, this is a disaster. What the hell? Blah, blah. Cal, seriously, they're just bluffing. It's okay. And by now, Jerry West, the GM of the Lakers, desperately wants Kobe Bryant. They've worked him out twice. It's the best workout Jerry West has ever seen. He's basically laying the foundation to get Kobe to LA. And Kobe, at this point, had signed a deal with Adidas already. And the people at Adidas, Sonny Vaccaro and those guys, desperately want Kobe in LA. They think Kobe in LA. I mean, you're playing for the Lakers or the Nets in East Rutherford, New Jersey. It's not a hard decision. Um, then David Falk, who represents Kerry Kittles of Villanova, calls Calipari and says, Kerry really wants to play for you guys. If you don't take him, if he's there at number eight, my clients will never play for you. When we will, I will never direct clients toward you guys again. Calipari is like, oh, fuck, what the hell? No, no, no. Runs into John Ash. John Ash is literally like, Cal, they're all messing with you. This is not – he's 18 years old. He's not, not going to play because when we draft him. This is ridiculous. So um, they have a meeting the day of the draft. And John Nash goes into this meeting. We're picking Kobe Bryant. This is it. Calipari goes, all right, guys, I've been doing a lot of thinking on this. Here's the deal. If Kerry Kittles is there at number eight, we're taking Kerry Kittles. If he's not there, we're taking Kobe Bryant. The draft comes. Jerry West is in L.A. freaking out because he desperately wants Kobe. He knows if Kobe gets past the Nets, none of the rest of those teams are taking the offer. He knows what's going on. Kerry Kittles is on the board. The Nets draft Kerry Kittles because Calipari wimped out. Wow. Kobe Bryant goes to the Charlotte to make the trade, Vladi Divac, Lakers. I interviewed Kerry Kittles for the book. He's like, I would have taken Kobe too. I played with Kobe in the summer. Kobe was better than me. I mean, you got to take that guy. So even Kerry <laughs> Kittles thought it was stupid. And um, remember Jason William, the for- Williams, the former Nets forward, sure. end up in prison. Yeah. So I interviewed him for the book and he just lit in the cow. He's like, this guy always talked about being a man and blah, blah, blah. He let an 18 year old kid talk him out of our future of our franchise he goes this is the dumbest fucking thing ever so anyway sorry um it's kind of funny though so that's, that's a good one I th- and i think you're right a lot of people don't don't know that I, I think everyone looks back at drafts and thinks well who passed on who but uh to know that they had been divided like that internally at the nets is surprising and also it's a crazy i love the games i'm sure you do too like we seem like we're the same mindset of where does this all go you know the sliding doors thing like what happens this is my prediction. Okay, here we go. Kobe's drafted by the Nets. He signs with the Nets. He's playing for Cal. He's definitely the most talented player on that roster immediately. I mean, yeah, this is the Nets of like Khalid Reeves and Ed O'Bannon. Terrible. Kobe starts very early on because they're trying to get ticket holders too. He shoots a gazillion times a game. There's no filter whatsoever. He averages 23 points, but on 32% shooting. And he goes on to this career with the Nets that's basically like uh, a little bit of a, a Carmelo Anthony type career, you know, like where he's a great player and he's in the hall of fame and he averages 33 a game, but it doesn't really amount to much. Meanwhile, probably Kerry Kittles goes to the Lakers and they have Shaq and they're probably pretty good. They probably win a title or two, you know, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's that, that reminds me going to a New Jersey Nets game it was certainly still in East Rutherford, and this was when they were really struggling. 
might have been post post Jason Kidd and Kenyon Martin and that crew, where to entice fans, they were doing reversible jersey giveaways where they would on one side it was a Nets jersey and on the other it was the jersey of 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 the guy who was really good. Wow. Uh, and that's you know that's that's where they were at a bit and, and I and I remember Kobe being being one of those jerseys. But you a, would you call, would you call yourself a basketball geek? Like are you hardcore into basketball? Yeah. So I was at the game. I was covering the game for Sports Illustrated. By coincidence. They made one of the craziest trades ever. Do you remember that huge trade they made with Dallas where they got Jimmy Jackson and they gave up Sean Bradley yes. and they got Sam Cassell and Chris Gatling. It was one of the great, it was an amazing hall of players. They got like, they actually got like, they got Sam Cassell, yeah. Chris Gatling. Those are two legit good. And they got George McLeod. Like it was a good hall of players, Jimmy Jackson. And they gave up nothing. And I was like, wow, the Nets are about to really turn the corner. And then Cal just blew that whole thing because nobody <laughs> wanted to play for him. Oh man, and that—I mean—that was the curse of the of, of of the Nets there for a long time. You know, prior to that group, and it's interesting. And I have to imagine you deal with the Nets quite a bit, or maybe somewhat in this book, right? Considering they came up against that Lakers team, that was a that was a super fun Nets team to watch there in the early two thousands. They were um, they were so out of their depth in that final. So, like. I remember Charles Barkley was the only person of any note who picked the Nets to beat the Lakers in that series. And I was a, I was a big Nets fan. I used to love the Nets. So I followed the Nets closely. And um, I was like, there's no, what, what with Kenyon Martin and Keith Van Horn, they're going to beat the Lakers. That's ridiculous. And I remember uh, I was talking to Brian Scalabrini, who was on the Nets team. He told me, I think it was game three, the Nets go on this run. And he said, we're playing as, as well as we played all year. We are just, rolling right and this is it we're at our best kids running the show he's going left to van horn kittles is spotting up it's great and he said we had this like 10 minute run of awesomeness the best we played all year and i look at the scoreboard and we're up by six and he's like that's when i knew we we had no chance in this series because that was our best we could give and they were just so much better than us and i talked to jason collins too and he's like they were just far superior to us they were just a better and sometimes you say that it's not that often but sometimes they're just far superior you hit on people maybe kind of forgetting about things at a certain period of time. And it sounds crazy when you follow basketball as much as we have to think that people have forgotten about Shaq, but you pull up some YouTube videos. I think people that see him today on inside the NBA and TNT, or they saw the end of his career, don't know this guy during that Lakers time, absolutely unstoppable. I mean, the way he destroyed people, what, what did you glean from others about how dominant this guy was? I actually agree with everything you just said. It is amazing that a guy that is this in the spotlight, this well-known, this famous, this lovable, this everything. And maybe that's the reason why, actually. But it's like, in everyone's memories, and this is not a Kobe slide at all. He deserves it. Kobe is like this, and Shaq is kind of like this. And it's like the Kobe and Shaq. And he was freaking re unstoppable force in a way that guys like Jordan and Kobe weren't. Because Jordan and Kobe actually were physically stoppable. You know, you could put two guys on Michael Jordan and he'll pass out of it and that kind of score. But like you could stop Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. You could throw three guys at Shaq. He was just too big, too strong, too powerful. And in his prime too quick. Um, one guy I interviewed or two guys I interviewed that were really interesting. Their names came up multiple times. Former net Evan Eschmeyer. Okay. And former San Antonio Spur Malik Rose, pride of Drexel university. And those two guys were super strong, like really strong. And they actually did okay defending Shaq by comparisons of everyone else. And both of them said the key to defending Shaq was to get super, super low on him, almost like a fire plug. 
And you remember Malik Rose, Malik Rose actually was a walking fire plug. Like he was super strong. He was probably six, six, maybe six, seven. And he would just get down really low. And the thing these guys all discussed also was like, you just needed a chiropractor the day after playing against Shaq. Like it was not, your body was decimated and you were beaten and you were destroyed and there was no real, you couldn't stop him. Like if you held him to 22, you did a really good job, you know? Um, and the other thing that's interesting about Shaq and sort of related to Kobe that I always think, you know that play uh, in the series against Portland, the famous the play, the alley yeah, the lob. I didn't realize this until I was working on the book, and I didn't really start thinking about it deeply until promoting the book. That is definitely the, the definitive Shaq Kobe play. You would agree, would you not? Sure. It's a play we think about. It's a play we talk about. It's shown a million times. I think what makes that unique, people view it as like, oh, look at this. It's showing Kobe and Shaq at their greatest. And I actually think what makes it unique is it never happens. Like, if you look at their history together, Kobe shoots that ball 98 out of 100 times, right? Like. The reason that play was so special isn't because it symbolized some cohesiveness Kobe and Shaq had on the court. It was so unique because it was so rare and so precious and this awesome, awesome moment that usually didn't happen. And people always will be like, the lazy narrative of it all is Kobe and Shaq. They didn't like each other, but on the court, they sure meshed. And it's like, no, they didn't. They actually <laughs> didn't mesh on the court at all. They were just great. Like they were so ridiculously talented. If you have two of the five best players in the NBA on your team at the same time, it's probably going to work out pretty well, you know? So I think that moment, which is captured as like this great Shaq Kobe moment, the greatness of it is the rareness of it. It just doesn't, it's a precious little jewel. Well, and, and you fall into kind of that recency effect too, right? Because as they got older and, and their careers came to an end and Shaq retired, they kind of, made efforts to patch things up and it kind of all blends together in your mind. And then there's a bunch of footage of them celebrating together. Yeah. To your point, those are not plays together where they actually worked in unison. Yeah. And also like, uh, um, it's just, it was a bad relationship made better by the passage of time and distance, you know? And like, there's a moment when I was interviewing Shaq for the book. It's one of my favorite tiny little moments of the whole process. I was in Atlanta in a little side room he was eating dinner we were talking before broadcast i think and i said to him near the end i think it was my last question it was my last question i said um one thing i think about with you and kobe is uh you always gave nicknames to yourself but it was always with a wink it was always like you know big aristotle big deporter shaq diesel superman but it was always like in on the joke and i said but kobe he nicknamed himself black mamba and then called himself black mamba and actually literally thought of himself as a black mamba and he goes, Shaq goes, deep voice. He's like, bro, now you know what I was dealing with. <laughs> and I thought that was a great little moment, you know, like they just weren't the same people. They were so different on such different stratospheres and they just were really talented and they both wore the same uniform, but they didn't have that much in common. And that's okay. It took me a long time, maybe until I became more of an adult to have a better appreciation for what Phil Jackson did with that team. I think I thought about him as a kid with the Bulls and then going to the Lakers thinking this, this guy's just super lucky. He gets to coach these teams that are just loaded with the best talent and uh, it can't be that hard. You know, you have two of the best guys, Jordan Pippen, two of the best guys, Kobe Shaq, figure it out, you get some wins. And then being around other teams and covering other sports and that sort of thing, there is a lot to be said for a coach that can bring egos and people together. Did, did, did you find more of that as you were kind of profiling that team, what, what his true effect was on this group? Yeah. Actually, it's such an interesting discussion because we always do this to coaches. If you think about it, like Belichick had Brady, 
Vince Lombardi had Bart Starr and Jimmy Taylor, you know, uh, Bill Parcells had Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks, man, in defense. Like, it's very hard to be a great coach when you have the roster of the, you know, 2000 Nets, you know, it's just it's not. So you have to have talent. I always, especially in hindsight, like I think the, the in a way, the genius of Phil Jackson or the, the genius might be too far, but the impact is he, um, he was willing to step back and let veterans run the locker room. And if you look at those teams, they were just loaded with really smart veterans who knew their place. In fact, one thing I definitely learned right in this book is the level to which the Lakers brought in veterans specifically to work with Kobe and to kind of buffer the friction. So in no particular order, you had John Sally come in, you had Ron Harper come in, you had Derek Harper come in, you had J.R. Reed come in, um, you had Horace Grant come in, you had Carl Malone come in. It's just this endless string. AC Green came in, a veterans brought in to be this guy. And I, Phil Jackson didn't want to be a babysitter. You know, and like we talked about John Calipari. John Calipari was a shitty NBA coach because he, he put his finger on everything. He had to be involved in everything. That's like, you cannot be an NBA coach and be involved in everything. And the reason Dell Harris, in a lot of ways, struggled with the Lakers, especially his last few years, is because he wouldn't shut up. And he kept talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. You can't do that with NBA players either. It just doesn't work. They don't want to listen to you for an hour lecture about defense. And Phil Jackson was very, here's what we're going to do. Here's what it's going to be. The book opens with a fight between Kobe Bryant and Samaki Walker. It was 2002 on a bus in Cleveland. And Kobe Bryant walks up to Samaki Walker and punches him in the face. Samaki Walker stands up and says, Phil, stop the bus. Stop the bus. A lot of coaches would not have stopped the bus. Phil Jackson said, can you stop the bus? And he was going to let Samaki Walker and Kobe Bryant walk out the bus and work it out one way or another. He just was really good at letting players be quote unquote men and, and backing off. And he was a tactical, he was a smart tactical coach, text winners and the triangle obviously had a big thing to do with it. But I think Phil's strength was honestly in being removed to a certain degree. I had read that it was made clear to you early on with this book, you weren't going to get a chance to talk to Kobe. Was there someone else that you missed out on that you would have loved to include? Oh yeah, there always are. I mean, I, um, Brian Shaw probably was the most disappointing. Brian Shaw was, so the Lakers for this book were not fun to deal with in the same way they were the first time. The, the organization is definitely a little more business. It's kind of the nature of the NBA now. And uh, I tried getting Brian Shaw. I felt like the organization wasn't that helpful. Maybe they tried and I, I don't know, but it was, he would have been great. And there are other guys, like I didn't, I interviewed about 300 and something people for this book, but I approached when the all-star game was in LA, I think two years ago, I approached, um, there was an event at a playground an NBA cares event at a playground and Ron Harper was going to be there and Horace Grant was going to be there. So I approached both those guys and Ron Harper blew me off immediately. I don't know why. And Horace Grant said, Oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. Give me a call and we'll work it out. Called and called and called, never heard back. Those just come with this profession, but they're always frustrating and annoying. So, what's your bar of like how much I'm going to push a guy before I say, okay, like that's it? They're not going to talk. It's usually along the lines of email, text, voicemail, done, right? Maybe written letter sometimes, but generally email, text, voicemail, done. Like, uh, I do not want to be a stalker. Like, it's not my goal to be a stalker. 
I knocked on the door. I mean, I, I did, for J.R. Ryder, I only had an address. I didn't have a phone number. So I did drive to his house and knocked on his, on his door. I will do that. But if I have someone's contact info, I will first try to reach him that way. And I, and I, and I love that story on J.R. Ryder where he's kind of miffed you're there, but then ends up giving you this great interview and uh, tells you all these details. So I guess people kind of war warm up to you after the initial greeting sometimes. I think it's harder. The reason door-to-door -door salesmen exist is because even though most of us reject them, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to say no when someone's right there. It just changes the dynamic. It's hard to say no to someone, especially if someone seems like a nice person. I've probably knocked on 15 doors in my career. I'm terrified every time I do it. I always tell like, I generally tell my wife where I am in case someone's gonna shoot me. And, um, but it almost always works. I've, I've heard you chronicle your editing process, how you whittle this down. You know, you have this long draft and then you have to kind of get it down. How, how do you know when you're done? You talk to 300 plus people, there's 96 to 04 is a big chunk of time. Mm -hmm. What's the feeling that says, good to go? I tell myself I have a year and a half to report the book. So generally you get two years to write a, to do a book. I say, all right, year and a half, you have a year and a half to report this book. That's really what I do. When a year and a half is over, I'm done. Now, if someone calls me while I'm writing and they're important, I'll talk to them or maybe I'll try someone one more time. But 98% of my reporting is done in that time period. And I give myself that time and I go as hard as I can. And then I just kind of hit the brakes and what I have, I have, and you got to live with it. That's it. Just time to me. How, how soon after you finish a book, do you start thinking about the next one? Oh, before I am. Um, I mean, I have ideas. I always have, I have a, I can't show it to you, but I literally have a list here on my wall, future book ideas. And as soon as I'm done, I'll talk to my agent and be like, well, what do you think about this? And what do you think about this? Can we pitch this? I'm, I'm not very good at sitting still. You know, I'm not that good at sitting still. I'm, in fact, I'm terrible at sitting still. So people always say like, oh, do you take a month and just relax? And no, <laughs> you know, onto the next subject. What's, what's the book you'd love to write, but unfortunately you feel like nobody would really want to read all that much on large scale? Oh, that's a good one. My, uh, I have two books I really want to write. I have three books I really want to write. I would love to write a biography of Gerald Ford. Uh, I'm a super liberal guy, as you know from my Twitter feed. Gerald Ford is one of my favorite public figures of all time. I just think he's one of the most decent human beings who's ever existed. Would love it. I don't know how many people are buying a Gerald Ford biography, but I would love to. I'm a huge, weirdly Blind Melon fan, the band Blind Melon. <laughs> Our lead singer, Shannon Hoon, died of a cocaine overdose uh, when I was in college. I think a Shannon Hoon biography would be awesome, but I mean, talk about fringe. That'd be a heavy lift to promote a Shannon Hoon book. And um, I would love to write a really, really good Tupac biography. I'm a huge Tupac fan. Um, and it's just, I'm not sure I'm there yet, but I think it's a book that I could do well. Now that's one I think that'll, that'll have some legs. I hope so. It'd be great. Maybe next book. You never know. <laughs> uh, and that'd be kind of a different look for you going outside the sports world, right? I mean, again, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, my sports are not my number one interest. You know, sure. like, and I'm passionate about music. I'm passionate about hip hop. I'm passionate about politics. People say, do you want to write a political book? Like, why don't you write a in the moment political book? And I think I would honestly blow my brains out. Like, I just think the negativity of it all would be really hard. And the thing about sports, if nothing else, like nothing in sports is that serious. That's the beauty of it all. It's all the overhanging theme of it all is it's just sports and that's accurate. So it's kind of a nice thing to turn to at the end of the day. Like I have, I already know there's a mistake in this book. I had Jerome Kersey's scoring average from one season off. That stuff kills me, right? That kills me. But it's just Jerome's Kersey scoring average. I'll fix it in the next edition and we move on. It's, you know, like sports allows that a little bit where it's okay. 
What's, what's been the evolution of how you operate on Twitter? I've followed you for a long time and I've seen Evolution. Uh, I'd say if anything. Because you will, you will share stuff and then maybe if you feel like you went too far, you'll, you'll kind of give, a, give an apology. You'll share, you know, even, even exchanges with people that you don't fundamentally agree with. You'll mm -hmm. kind of say, hey, I had, a, I had a good talk with them about where we're at and maybe we disagree, but at least it was civil. Kind of how, how have you grown on this platform? It sounds like maybe you feel like you haven't. Well, I mean, one thing I've looked, like I, the other day I had an exchange with someone I know. She's a very conservative writer named Georgie Boardman. And I wrote something like, just a number member of the Trump cult, something like that. And she DM'd me and she's like, really, cult? And I wrote her back and I was like, you know what? I'm really sorry, that was, that was just me in a pissed off mood. That was bad, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, I totally get it. She's a really nice person. And um, there's nothing wrong with apologizing. I think that's the number one lesson. If anything, it's a great feeling. I never ever understand people who are resistant to apologizing. Why is it wrong to admit you were wrong? Why does it show weakness? And I always think like, I swear to God, I already mean this. Like I can't stand Donald Trump, but if that guy just every now and then admitted he was wrong, like he would do so much for his image. Like if one time he was just like, you know what? I've already been thinking about this. I shouldn't have called Nancy Pelosi crazy Nancy. This is not cool. That's not right of me. I'm going to try to be a little better. You know what I mean? Like people would be like, all right, we need this. So why is it so bad to admit you're wrong? To say, so I would say the one thing I've learned on Twitter is the value of apologizing and actually that it feels good to apologize. I hate Twitter. I wish Twitter didn't exist. I wish I wasn't kind of addicted to Twitter. It's like my little sidekick. Um, writing is a very isolating world. You kind of, it's nice to have sidekicks. But if Twitter blew up tomorrow and never existed again, um, I would be a really happy human being. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I'll tell you something. Tom Verducci on my podcast a few weeks ago, I said, how come you're not on Twitter? And he goes, because no one has ever told me, wow, being on Twitter is so great, you should do it. <laughs> He's right. He's totally right. That's interesting. I, I met Tom once at an event, and uh, I had just been watching that. Do you, do you watch that show with Hank Azaria, Jim, Jim Brockmeyer? Have you seen that at all, where he's like no. the old-timey announcer? He does like a take on uh, like a 1950s announcer, but it gets... Like a red barber kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. right? But it gets very... Uh, the show gets very kind of dark and lurid. And that's the good? What's that? The good? Uh, you know, I, I find it funny, but but what I learned was, I you know, I, I see Tom, Mr. Baseball writer, and I figure this is such a baseball show. He must he must love this show, you know, oh. and, and they have announcers in it. They have reporters in it. You know, Joe, Joe Buck's been in it, that sort of thing. And so I'm like, and Tom, what do you think about the new season of Brockmire? Figuring, of course, he must like it. And he was just like yeah, a little little too, you know, dark and blue for me, you know, oh, um, funny. The kind of the language. And I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> Lesson learned. Yeah. He's one of the most unique people I've ever worked with ever in my life. He is, I worked with Tom for like six years. I can't say I know him super well, even though we sat next to each other in um, stadiums many times, but he's a, uh, but I have not zero bad. He's just a professional times a million and as good as it gets. I mean, I'll never be as good as that. Sometimes you look at people and you're like, that guy's just, he's a better, he's better than I am. That's great. Cause he's awesome. His, his recent story, uh, on Tom Seaver and the kind of the final get together with some of the 69 Mets at Seaver's Vineyard in Napa. Yeah. Is just an all time. Yeah, he's a bad example. He's the best. And he works hard and he deserves it. I mean, he's just, he's great. He's just great. Just, just a couple more here. I appreciate you taking so much time. I only have like six minutes just, you know, cause I gotta do it. Don't hate me. Cause I have a, no, no, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, so let's sorry, we'll but... cut to the end here. Okay. Uh, we, we end all these and this is me, me selfishly. Cause I, I could talk about sports with you for a long time, but I could too. Yeah. I could talk for two hours usually. I swear to God, I love this stuff. <laughs> totally good. Totally good. Uh, 
we end with three questions, kind of the what's good format of this what's good podcast. I'll start with the first one. What's something you've done for yourself lately? Um, man, well, it sounds super self-indulgent, but um, we all quit our gyms out here because of uh, COVID. So I, uh, I, I bought a Peloton. So, you, so you're part of the now, do you have a Peloton hashtag? Are you part of that crew? I do. And uh, my, my, my Peloton name is Lilia Boy because it's my son's fake hip hop name. He pretends he's a rapper named Lilia Boy. Nice. So um, it's ridiculous. But I just needed something. Like I can't go to a gym. My back isn't good enough to run anymore. Like I needed something. And I got to say, like being on that bike, it's not the worst. And you walk away dripping in sweat. So it's, uh, but it was, yeah, it's a little embarrassing. I feel like it's a little self-indulgent, the Peloton. You're like hashtag OC Peloton dads or something? No, I'm definitely not. I'm, <laughs> not. Actually, my picture is, um, my son and I recently did a Gary Coleman movie marathon. And um, so my picture is Gary Coleman and my hashtag is Gary Coleman. Very nice, very nice. What's, what's something you've done for someone else recently? So one thing I started doing a couple of months ago, a bunch of months ago when the pandemic started, is um, I started writing letters to people um just telling them why i appreciate them and i just think there's something nice about receiving a letter or you know we always like too often you only the only time people get together and say nice things about you are at your funeral and you're not even there for it you know and i just like the idea of receiving a letter of receiving a letter as someone saying you know what you really made a difference in my life and i just want you to know that or i really appreciate you so i uh, i was i started doing that i slacked a little because of book promotions and the other thing I started doing is writing postcards to get out the boat postcards um, and just trying to get out the boat. And doing your part to save the Postal Service. Those two things require stamps. So well done. Any more than me, man. <laughs> and what's, the, what's, what's something you turn to when you kind of want to unplug from everything? What makes you laugh? Oh, good question. I'll tell you what I've turned to lately. It's not really laugh, but the, the formerly named Dixie Chicks, now the Chicks, have a new album out. And I'm not usually, I'm no longer a guy who like listens to the full, this thing is on repeat, nonstop. It speaks to me a million ways over. And it's kind of weird. I'm not a target audience in a lot of ways for that. Like I love the Indigo Girls. It's funny, I love Tupac and I love the Indigo Girls. And the Indigo Girls really, I, I remember covering an Indigo Girls concert and it was just gay women, gay couples everywhere and me, you know? And it was like one of the coolest shows I've ever been to because they really spoke to these people and they speak to me and, and the, the chicks, a lot of it is about is about saying f you to the man and f you to a bad relationship, but, you, but there's something in these times that it really hit me. That and then Nas's new album. Nas has a new album out too. So the chicks and Nas listening to them on loops over and over again um, has really sparked joy in my life. That's a combo nobody ever expected. Uh, you you write it all the time. How do you say your hometown in New York? I always see it in your Twitter. Uh, all right, so I just want to say I pronounce it Mayo Pack. However. Someone I went, a friend of mine I went to uh, high school with, Donna Massaro, who owns the Freight House Cafe in Mayopac, New York, always lambasts me when she hears me do an interview because she said it is Mahopac. So I say Mayopac, Donna says Mahopac. It's probably Mahopac. Excellent. Jeff Perlman, Three Ring Circus is coming out uh, while we're talking tomorrow, but everyone check it out. Amazon, elsewhere. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Frank. That was awesome.